Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Atlanta Council. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm a vice president here and director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. This afternoon's conversation is on national security and the cyber threat landscape with the Honorable um, John Carlin, Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the Justice Department, and it's part of our monthly speaker series, Cyber Risk Wednesdays. The series is designed to bring cyber experts from government and industry together with policymakers to examine topics at the core of the Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative's mission. And today, we will certainly discuss some of the past year's notable events that have shaped the national security threats that we are facing in cyberspace and assessing the U.S. government's uh, ongoing responses to those developments. As we all know, the past couple of months have been rather turbulent ones in the cyber realm. We've witnessed a number of unexpected developments, both positive and negative, and the repercussions of these developments for national security in some cases are known, but in, in other cases are still playing out. Just a few weeks ago, a hacker was detained in Malaysia on a U.S. arrest warrant accused of stealing personal information of over 1,000 members of the United States Armed Forces and providing this information to ISIS. This is the first time that U.S. authorities have combined cybercrime and terror charges in an international arrest, to our understanding. And, and in September, uh, when Chinese President Xi was here, China and the United States reached agreement to end commercial cyber espionage. We'll want to address that as well. Um, the two countries for years have been sparring over allegations of groups of Chinese government-supported hackers spying on U.S. companies, exfiltrating uh, important proprietary information, among other types of information. And of course, over the summer, we had the uh, OPM hack that dominated the news, and many have labeled it as the biggest breach in U.S. history. And just under a year ago, the Obama administration uh, decided to take action against the, the Sony hack in a manner that it had not been done before, publicly accusing and punishing the government of North Korea for it. Uh, these are just a few examples among many that we'll want to discuss for the policy and security implications in a broader discussion today uh, on stage. Uh, let me introduce our two discussants, and I'm really thrilled to uh, welcome the Honorable John Carlin today and to hear his remarks on these issues. Thanks for coming, John, very much. Um, he is the Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the Department of Justice and serves as the department's top national security attorney. Um, he has had a long and di distinguished career as a federal prosecutor after joining the Department of Justice through the Attorney General's uh, um, Honors Program. He served as the Assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia from 2001 to 2007, where he prosecuted cases ranging from homicide to cyber matters. After serving as the National Coordinator for the Department of Justice's Computer Hacking and Intellectual Property Program in 2007, he then served as Special Counsel and then Chief of Staff to FBI Director Robert Mueller, and in that capacity, he helped lead the Bureau's evolution to meet the growing and very, very much changing uh, national security threats that included cyber but was not limited to cyber. And then in 2014, he was appointed by the President to serve as the Assistant Attorney General overseeing the National Security Division uh, at the Department responsible for protecting the country against terrorism, espionage, cyber, and other national security threats. Under his leadership, this division has worked with U.S. attorneys' offices and others in several high-profile cases, including the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, the Sony um, computer incident, 
and the indictment of five members of the Chinese military for economic espionage, um, again, among a wide range of other uh, activities. The discussion today will be moderated by uh, Benjamin Wittes. He is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the national security blog Lawfare. Uh, he is also a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and a member of the Hoover Institution's task force on national security and law. Thanks very much, Ben, for, for coming here. He's authored several books on the internet, intersection of law and national security, uh, and his writing has appeared in a wide range of notable journals and magazines. Um, before we start, I'd also like to welcome our media partner, Passcode, which is the Christian Science Monitor's new guide to security and privacy. Welcome also to those who are watching online. I encourage all of you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag ACCyber and at CSM Passcode. And with that, uh, Mr. Carlin and, and Mr. Wittes, the floor is yours. Thanks very much. We'll start, I'll give some introductory uh, remarks and go through a little bit of what the National Security Division is and what the Justice Department's current approach is to nation state and terror threats. And then we'll uh, switch to a moderated discussion. So the National Security Division is the first new litigating division formed at the Department of Justice in about 50 years. We were created in 2006. And the reason for our creation was simple. It had to do with the failures that led to the, uh, the tragedy of September 11th. Namely, the failure to share information across from intelligence to law enforcement and back again. And so as part of the reforms recommended post 9-11, there were certain reforms that changed legally uh, what the restrictions would be in terms of sharing information. But at the Justice Department, there was also a recommendation to change culturally how we were sitting together. So prior to the creation of the National Security Division, there were four different reporting chains. Those who did terrorist, uh, terrorism prosecutions reported through one chain, spies through another. Those who did the intelligence work before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, third chain. And those who did certain regulatory matters, like those before the Committee on the Foreign Investment in the United States uh, to protect against national security risks, reported through yet a fourth chain. So the idea of the uh, division was simple. There should be a one-stop shop for national security questions that serves as the bridge to the intelligence community and other partners. And key to that change in approach or philosophy was making sure that each day that the lawyers in the division were focused not on a prosecution being success, but instead on preventing a terrorist attack. And to do that, that meant being intelligence-driven, getting intelligence from the rest of the community that showed you what the threat was, and then driving our efforts as lawyers to preventing the threat. So our top priority is preventing, as you can understand, given our foundation, preventing a terrorist attack inside the, uh, inside the United States. And in order to do that, switching to this intelligence-led threat model would mean, for instance, that as the community gathers information about a particular terrorist or a particular terrorist group, that we're able to advise our other partners on their legal authorities, and whether it's Department of Defense or State or Treasury, each has different legal authorities to bring to bear. And then we sit together regularly in the National Security Council with our counterparts, thinking through how can we best leverage our existing legal authorities to disrupt this threat, to prevent the terrorist attack from occurring. So what are we seeing now? We've seen a change in the terrorist threat. 
whereas uh, it, we used to focus on the large-scale spectacular attack of an al-Qaeda. And we still see al-Qaeda with the desire to launch a large-scale spectacular attack. And we've seen other groups echo, echo that call, whether it's al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or uh, al-Nusra, an al-Qaeda offshoot in Syria. But we've seen a change between that focus on the large-scale spectacular attack and a model that involved long-term strategic planning by the terrorist group. What we've seen now, and particularly with the uh, Islamic State and the Levant, or ISIL, is that they change strategies. They no longer are uh, concerned about their brand the way Al-Qaeda was. And instead, essentially, they're trying to crowdsource terrorism. And so what they do is they use some of uh, American-made technology and know-how against us. And they exploit existing platforms, be it uh, through Facebook, Twitter, other social media platforms, to launch propaganda all throughout the world hoping, even though it's a relatively small number of individuals, that they can get individuals on the other end uh, of that line to join as foreign terrorist fighters overseas. And we saw them switch to this uh, model, say, uh, at least 18 months, two years ago, where they would blast indiscriminately this call for those to join them uh, in a terrorist fight overseas. And what they were actually doing overseas, which is uh, brutal in, in a way perhaps unparalleled in that they use rape as a consistent political and ideological tool, that they sell women and children into slavery, that they kill Muslims and non-Muslims alike with impunity. I mean, this is a platform that's united the world in a way that we haven't seen before. Last year, I remember uh, being with the president as we had United Nations Resolution 2178, and you saw countries throughout the world who agree on very little else, agree that this, this uh, problem of foreign terrorist fighters going to this region is one that needs to be stopped. But that's not how they're recruiting. Instead, you're seeing uh, propaganda out there that's uh, like a slick advertiser. And what they'll put out there is, uh, a, a social media video that shows uh, a handsome soldier handing out candy to children, to use one example of a video. Or it'll show a soldier uh, with a gun in one hand and a kitten in the other as they try to recruit. And then when they get someone on the line, they walk them through a process of radicalization, whereas 10, 15 years ago, the assessment of the intelligence community would be to get radicalized to join one of these terrorist groups, that you would need to have a person-to-person -person connection. Now we're seeing it occur in some instances entirely online. And again, often using US-made uh, technology, they'll have one-on-one -on -one conversations where the terrorist overseas is having a uh, conversation with a kid inside the United States and walking them down uh, a path of, rad of radicalization. And we're seeing that reflected uh, in terms of the cases that we're seeing inside the United States. Particularly troubling was a pivot. So whereas before, where they were calling for people to join, and we have an obligation both in terms of protecting ourselves from individuals who might travel overseas, learn additional skills with a foreign terrorist group, come back to commit an attack. But also we have an obligation to our fellow citizens around the world not to allow, just as we've asked every other country to do through United Nations Resolution 2178, not to allow our citizens to go join the reprehensible acts that are being committed in Iraq, in Syria by this terrorist group. But they switched from doing that call to go overseas to calling on individuals to commit attacks where they live. Uh, and saying, if you uh, no passport required, no travel required, 
kill who you can locally. And when they issued that call, they issued it with a call to move quickly. And so whereas before there might be a long time between the initiation of a plot and its execution, and sometimes we refer to this as the flash to bang. If you think of a stick of dynamite and you light the stick on one side, there used to be a long time before the dynamite goes bang. Now there's a much shorter flash to bang. They're calling for the attack immediately. And we're seeing that effect uh, throughout the United States. As the FBI director has said, there are currently investigations open in all 50 states. And we have brought over 70 cases, criminal cases through the terror, uh, criminal cases related to terrorism over the last, say, 18 months or so. And this is uh, something we simply had not seen before. And when we look at the trend lines of those cases, they are not linked to a particular geographic uh, area. They're not linked to a particular ethnicity. Instead, they're across 25 different uh, US attorney's offices and counting in terms of the cases that we've brought. And they're hitting a particular demographic. So 55% of the cases are so are individuals 25 or younger. And one third, most troubling, are 21 or younger. That's not the same uh, age demographic that we saw with Al-Qaeda. And we think that's connected to the other common factor, which is social media is involved with almost every one of these cases. So they've switched strategies or tactics, and we're seeing the result here. So in the short term, what uh, we've been doing is bringing these cases and trying to bring the cases in time so that short flash to bang doesn't lead to terrorist attacks inside the United States. But the long-term strategy has to be broader than that. And consistent with the reason why we were founded, successful prosecution is not success. Success will be figuring out a way to counter the strategy or tactic so they're no longer reaching uh, young people in the United States with a message that we ought to be able to counter when you think about who this group really is, if we can accurately get that, that message out. So that's uh, one part of the terrorism front that's linked to uh, technology. Uh, but the second is the case, and maybe we'll get in more detail with it with, uh, with Ben later, but for easy work, this is a case we've, we've said it would come, but now it's come. It's the first time we've charged, and these are allegations in a complaint, charged an individual both with the Computer Fraud and, and Abuse Act, because this is someone who hacked into a US uh, company to steal information, but also with material support to a terrorist group, because on the back end, he used that information to provide it to individuals located in Syria, so then they could post it back using, again, American companies uh, in large part to post a call to kill US service uh, members where they, where they live. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So that's on the terrorism uh, side. And again, I think we've gotten successful applying this model of moving quickly, uh, moving across legal authorities, and working together as a, uh, as a community across our respective legal authorities on terrorism. When it came to cyber, when I was over at the uh, FBI working for Director Mueller and we did the restructuring, we got very good at mapping out on a giant screen what the threats are. But what we saw on the intelligence side was unacceptable. Because what we saw was day in, day out, thousands of intrusions occurring across the range of American industry. And we saw, uh, we'd see the intruders hop in, uh, and then we'd see the data being exfiltrated out. And what we weren't doing was deterring it, disrupting it, the way we do with other threats in this sphere. We came back to the National Security Division and realized we weren't applying some of the same lessons we'd applied to terrorism. For instance, we were not uh, sharing the intelligence and law enforcement information when it came to the cyber threat. 
And by the intelligence side of the house, I'm referring to threats that emanate from nation states and terrorist groups. So on the terrorism side of the house, you had FBI agents meeting regularly with specially trained prosecutors, sharing all of the intelligence, even though in the large majority of cases, it would never see a, a criminal courtroom. But the idea was we should look through that um, because there may be those cases where you need the criminal justice system and you need to work together to develop those cases, but also because as lawyers, sometimes you think of different ways to use uh, the information across the range of legal tools. When it came to cyber, we didn't have specially trained folks doing it. When I was a prosecutor specializing in these cases, I worked on the criminal side of the house. I worked with an FBI squad, and there was a literal locked door, skiff door. On the other side of that door was the intelligence squad. I never went in on the other side of that door the whole time I was working those criminal cases. And it's not like I was banging on the door to get in, because Lord knows there's enough to do on the criminal side of the house. But the problem was nobody was doing it. So when we came back in 2012, we retrained both the folks at the National Security Division and uh, using other specially trained computer crime prosecutors at Justice, the so-called Computer Crime Intellectual Property Section. We retrained hundreds of prosecutors throughout the field to be national security cyber specialists. Trained on the one hand on the bits and bytes and the, the particularities of the law in this area, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and on the other hand, making sure they had the clearances, they were used to using sensitive sources and methods and how to balance that against due process, but still be able to use them in a criminal uh, justice system, and then getting them read in so they knew what the threats were. It was that change in approach that led uh, directly to the indictment of five members of the People's Liberation Army, uh, Unit 61398, in a first-of-its-kind case where there were nation state actors, but what they were doing was theft, pure and simple. And it was across a range of American industry, from nuclear to solar to steel. And it was quite clear when you looked at what they were doing that what they were doing was not stealing, uh, according to the allegations of the complaint, uh, that what they were not stealing was traditional intelligence or national security secrets. They were looking to steal things to make money uh, and provide it for companies who were in direct competition with the victims inside the United States. So we brought uh, the People's Liberation Army case. And uh, that, uh, that marked the first time we were really trying a new approach, which was, one, using the great skills we have at FBI and elsewhere in the community to do the investigation and attribution, but do it in a way that you can say it publicly. Because two, it's not good enough to figure out who did it. You need to be willing to say it if you're going to affect behavior in this, in this area, if you're going to have deterrence, if you're going to create norms. And three, there needs to be a consequence at the end of the day for what you did. It can't be a free ride or we're not going to uh, get ahead of this uh, problem. So after the PLA case and as we completed the restructuring at the National Security Division, including putting a, a, a full-time uh, deputy who focuses on nothing but this type of threat, we had Sony. And I can tell you when we were wargaming out what the first... Uh, attack was going to look at by a rogue nuclear-armed nation-state in the cyber arena. We were not guessing that it would involve a movie about a bunch of, uh, how many of you have seen that movie? <laughs> well, I'm not going to comment on the movie. But uh, <laughs> suffice it to say, it's not what I expected to be briefing in the Situation Room. And so, uh, but nevertheless, that's what caused a major destructive attack that got people's attention. Now, there had been an attack before then 
Also, in an industry you might not expect, in the gaming industry, by Iranian-affiliated uh, actors. That was also a destructive attack against the Sands Casino. But Sony got the world's attention in, in a way that only the entertainment industry probably could. And so when we were uh, responding to that in terms of a, a strategic approach, it was important not just in terms of what the message was to the North Koreans, but to all of the other countries and groups that were watching, how is the US going to respond? And that's why it was important that we did respond. And here's where cyber is a little bit different than terrorism. In terrorism, we focused very much uh, on the uh, traditional terrorism, on breaking down the divide between law enforcement and intelligence. But as you move into the cyber arena, you have to add a third category, and that is doing the private sector outreach. They have to be part of the solution. Too much of the infrastructure is in private hands for it to be any other way. And that means having trust between uh, those on the government side of the house, be they in law enforcement or the intel, and the companies who are the victims of these attacks. And what Sony did right was they immediately came in and they knew by name and by face pre-attack someone they trusted in government to call. They called and then they worked uh, day in, day out after the attack to, and provided the information that allowed us to do step one, the investigation and attribution. And what you saw in Sony was 27 days after the attack, we had high enough confidence in who did it to be able to use an approach we had not used before, which was to say publicly uh, who did it. There was no charge attached, but the FBI put out that it was the North Koreans. And then three, in terms of consequence, there was an existing executive order that was used to sanction the uh, North Koreans. And you heard the president and others say, there'll be some things you see like this, some things you don't see, but there are going to be consequences when you attack uh, uh, individuals inside the United States through cyber-enabled means. I think it was that discussion and trying to figure out what the frameworks are that led to the first executive order directed at cyber-enabled activities in April 1st uh, of that year. This had been talked about for a period of time and is similar to the approach we've used against terrorists, against those who would proliferate weapons of mass destruction and other technology. And this is that all-tools approach. When you can figure out specifically who did it and you're working on ways to disrupt it, the, sanction, the use of sanctions can be a very powerful tool. And you saw that included in that uh, executive order on sanctions was specifically that you could sanction individuals who uh, intrude upon you, US companies for commercial profit, for commercial benefit. So now we have that sanction order on the books. And it was in large part uh, perhaps fear that we would use that executive order on sanctions that led to the uh, unprecedented traveling of a delegation of over 30-some people and a personal representative of President Xi prior to the President Obama and President Xi's dialogue to the United States for a series of discussions on what we could do in cyber that led to, for the first time, President Xi saying that they, they too, agree that the commercially, uh, uh, that stealing information for commercial purposes is theft and that it's unacceptable. And that's important, I think, as we move forward in, uh, in this space. Because uh, bottom line, you can't ask US uh, companies or any other company in the world to try to compete against the full resources of a nation state if they are employed in stealing what you've put so much hard work and effort into developing through research and development. So that was an important moment. But now we need to watch and see what's actually done to implement it. And as we do that, we need to continue to use deterrence Throughout, uh, throughout the full range of our efforts, and deterrence in the sense of 
outside. We need to think about it in terms of armed conflict, but we also need to use it as we've used it in other national security problem areas, which is when the range of conduct is this broad, deterrence can be the full range of our legal tools, whether it's the use of the criminal justice system, that should not be off the table, uh, or the use of sanctions, the use of commerce authorities to designate certain entities um, that are those that are damaged the national security interests of the United States, so you can't trade with them, and to fuel our diplomatic uh, efforts with our allies. And part of that conversation or change in mind frame is going to involve us continuing to do outreach. Our division, we work uh, in secure compartmented facilities, and we were unused to doing events like these, coming out and speaking to, uh, uh, to individuals. And so we recognize that we need to do that. And so we now have an outreach uh, coordinator for the first time. And as part of this private outreach, uh, we've gone to events ranging from appearing with the CEO of uh, Sony in a Vanity Fair, which I can tell you was an unusual venue for me, uh, to uh, going to the Sands uh, Casino to talk to the, uh, the gaming industry. We need to not only get out there, we need to get out there in the forums that are being attacked and for whom national security event is not something that they've ever dealt with before, have those conversations before they are in the midst of a crisis. And so that's, that's where we're moving now. And as part of that, that means listening back. What are the problems the private sector is having in terms of sharing information? And we've heard a variety of issues, ranging from concerns about sharing information in a, in a particular sector that it might raise antitrust, concerns, and because we heard that doing outreach, we issued a paper through the Department of Justice saying you don't need to have an antitrust concern when you're sharing threat indicator information. And in fact, uh, one company has come to antitrust uh, division in advance to say, is my uh, program or model going to be one that violates antitrust to get assurances that it would not? Another was the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. People were concerned about sharing, again, threat indicator information, so we gave uh, guidance on that. We'll continue to address the questions as they uh, come up, and they, they vary sector by sector. But that's going to have to be uh, uh, an unusual, a different, but a part of our national security strategy. And I'll stop there. All right. Is this, is this on? OK. Uh, so let's start with uh, the case you mentioned right at the beginning, Farisi. Um, this is a cyber event. You started by talking mostly about terrorism. And then you shifted gears to cyber in sort of the second half of your remarks. And it seems to me the bridge between those is this case that has sort of elements of it's ultimately a terrorism case, but it's also a hacking case, as well as these very many ISIL cases where the, both the mechanism of contact uh, and the mechanism of radicalization is essentially the cyber domain. So I want, if you could, to what extent are these really different domains at this point? Or to what extent are uh, these intellectual categories that we've created, you know, this is a cyber issue, this is a terrorism issue, but in fact, the domains have merged in, in, in a meaningful or, or to some extent. How, how distinct are they at this point? No, I think that's uh, uh, an excellent question. As your, your book, uh, recent book pointed out, um, uh, the, we're, we're seeing now these blended threats that defy traditional categories. And uh, often one of the primary 
common factors, or if you think of two, are one, that they're international in scope, and two, that there's a very low barrier to entry. So you can commit great harm with a low barrier to entry. And when it comes to terrorism, I think it is blended. Uh, you, you can't look at the terrorist threat or competently seek to tackle it unless you uh, look at the way in which it is cyber-enabled. So that may range from, to put it in different buckets, recruitment, radicalization, and operational planning. Now, if you look in military textbooks dating back thousands of years, the advantage of being able to instantaneously communicate uh, in combat was one that has long been sought for, and we've provided it for free uh, to uh, an adversary right now, Nissel, in, in the fact that they're using American social media companies and technology to communicate in real time with each other. And then you have the issue that I talked about before that's different. And there's many, many uh, positive benefits to the uh, explosion in social media, but it's also created a problem we just didn't have before this venue, which is because our kids are not playing uh, just in the, in the real playground in the neighborhood, they're playing online and trusting people online in a way that we didn't have before. And we're seeing terrorist groups exploit that medium to radicalize uh, and recruit and operationally plan. Then you have the use, uh, the more traditional use, I think, when people think about cyber, which is cyber-enabled attacks. You have the intention. Um, and this goes back several years now, Al-Qaeda's, the head of Al-Qaeda put out a public video calling for cyber jihadists to cause as much destruction as they can through cyber-enabled means. So we know they have the intent. We've seen Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIL echo that call for a major uh, cyber attack. And we know we have that uh, vulnerability in that really a nation state now, uh, certain nation states, have the capability to cause crippling cyber attacks, but are presumably deterred uh, from doing so. What we don't have yet is a terrorist group whose capabilities match their intentions. Um, but that, unfortunately, unless we do everything we can to, to deprive them from getting it, is a matter of time. And with a terrorist group, they're not going to be deterrable, at least these particular groups. Once they develop the capability, they're going to deploy it. Farisi, I think, is an example of so wait, yeah. walk us through the allegations in the Farizi case so that, so that those who aren't familiar with them can see the, the, the weaving together of these two distinct, we think of distinct domains. Yeah, and Farizi is, uh, I think, a fascinating set of facts, and these are allegations, and this is a charge case, and the defendant will have the right to defend himself in a court of law. But according to the allegations, you have an individual from Kosovo, linked to extremist group there, who travels to Malaysia, part to get additional training and launch cyber attacks. He then launches cyber attacks against U.S. victim companies here. And from the point of view of the US uh, company, I think this is important for those wrestling with whether or not they should uh, report incidents to law enforcement, because from the point of view of the company, it looks like it might be a traditional uh, and relatively low-level criminal intrusion. They see the theft of personally identifiable information. Then when they try to kick the individual off the, uh, off the system, and they don't, they don't know who it is, uh, the person says, if you kick me off the system, I'm going to publish this in a way that embarrasses you. And not only do you have to keep me on the system, you have to pay me $500 through Bitcoin. 
and then he asks for another uh, 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 payment. That's cl uh, classic what we call ransom, ransomware uh, attack. So it looks like it's criminal behavior. What the company would not have known is that on the back end, this individual in Malaysia was giving the data to a terrorist, a designated foreign terrorist group, ISIL. And in fact, one of the individuals he was giving it to is a British citizen, uh, Junaid Hussein, living in Raqqa, Syria, associated uh, with ISIL in its terrorist group aims. He then takes, uh, together they call the data, um, it's over 100,000 identities, down to 1,000 where they think are linked to the military. Then they post that online to Twitter, among other places, and call for individuals located inside the United States, presumably whom they've radicalized, to kill them. So that gives you a sense of the cross-border nature of the current threat that we're facing. It also gives you a sense of why you need private sector cooperation if we're going to encounter it. On the plus side, you also had us uh, get the cooperations of the Malaysian and show that we can, you're not uh, anonymous, these are not cost-free, we can and did find and arrest uh, the individual, and now he's charged, and uh, we'll, we'll face the consequences of his actions. So as people have questions, uh, you know, jump up and down and signal me with your hands, and I will uh, try to, try to uh, I will sort of weave audience questions in as I go. So, you know, when you guys announced the PLA indictment, I guess probably 18 months ago now, um, a lot of people, and I confess I was one of them, and you know, you talked about it at Brookings at an event that I hosted, and I, you know, a lot of people reacted with a, what good is this if you don't have custody over the individuals? Um, more recently, it does, there is at least some evidence that those indictments really shook the Chinese government and produced some degree, to some degree, the progress that we've seen or may have contributed in a significant way to the, to the sort of public posture that the Chinese have taken. I'm interested, first of all, in what role you see those indictments having played. You mentioned in your remarks, um, you know, them having played a role. How would you describe the role that sort of unrequited indictments play in, in, the, in the international diplomacy of, of these? But secondly, what can you tell us about uh, to what extent Chinese rhetoric, uh, you know, at that summit has been matched by any sort of change in behavior uh, in the weeks since then? So I think it was very important that we bring deterrence to the table and show, look, especially when it comes to the theft of economic information uh, to be used by another company against a company here. That is a classic cost-benefit analysis that can be measured in dollars and cents. And so as long as we were treating it as an intel uh, problem only, that we were not discussing publicly, it was cost-free. And so why wouldn't you keep stealing the information rather than investing in research and development? So it was, and I don't think there was ever a conscious policy choice to take things like the criminal justice system off of the table. Instead, because it was being done through uh, Intel channels, we just started to default towards not using the criminal justice system, and that was sending a message that this is a, a, that this is either 
we know who's doing it, but it's okay, because there's going to be no consequence, or we can't figure it out, so we have this new tool that's completely anonymous, and we can get free what we would otherwise have to pay for. And so uh, the PLA case, I think, was a, a vitally important wake-up call that said, no, we can figure out exactly who did it in the way that uh, prosecutors and law enforcement are trained to, that is, by name, by face, who's behind the keyboard, not generally, and do so in a way that we can use it uh, publicly and here to uh, uh, their allegations, but we wouldn't be under our protocols allowed to bring the case unless we were confident we could proceed uh, beyond a reasonable doubt before a jury. And it, it, it can't stop there, just like in other instances. The criminal justice can't be the only tool. It's not going to ultimately change behavior. But then that led to the uh, issuance of an executive order that would allow for sanctions. The bottom line has to be, as a country, um, that we need to be uh, confident that at the end of the day, the status quo is unacceptable, that you can't, uh, that it's our responsibility in government and that we should be held to that responsibility to protect companies and individuals from the determined efforts of a nation state to steal day in and day out. That's a fundamental governmental responsibility. And we need to keep increasing the costs until the costs outweigh the benefits, and we see a change in behavior. Whether this marked that event, I think as the president say, uh, said, we need to watch and see. They were, it was the right uh, sentiment. You've seen other countries echo this as a norm now, uh, South, uh, South Korea, I think, most uh, recently. And so I think there's a general understanding in the world that, if, uh, that one should not steal from another country's companies for economic benefit. But we'll wait and see. In order, however, to really figure out but when, yeah. when you say we'll wait and see, what are we waiting to see? I mean, the, so the, the, you know, for a long time, the, the FBI director would go up to the Hill and uh, other officials would as well. And they'd say, you know, there are two kinds of companies in America, the kinds that have been hit and the kinds that don't know that they've been hit yet. And we would see uh, just repeated assertions that every day brings new revelations of new, uh, you know, Chinese cyber attacks. And so I guess what I'm trying to figure out is we're waiting to see whether that dials back. We're waiting to see whether it stops. And what are the preliminary indications that we're seeing? Well, first, the, the, the president took nothing off the table in terms of uh, it was great that we agreed to this norm, but... That's all the more reason, now that we've all agreed to this norm, why when people violate it and you catch them, that there's a price to be paid, be it criminal or through the use of sanctions. So nothing is off the table. But secondly, in terms of waiting and seeing, it's do you see a significant decrease in activity that shows it's no longer a strategy to day in, day out steal from companies what is clearly stolen for economic use? And part of figuring out whether that's occurring or not, and the fastest way to figure it out has to be having companies come in who are the victim of, uh, of these crimes. And for a while, it was a badge of shame to, uh, to come in. And I think partly, I hope, uh, discussions like the directors that say, everyone's getting hacked. And there's no wall that you can build that's high enough or deep enough to keep a dedicated nation state or even a dedicated, sophisticated criminal group out of your system. So when we're doing outreach, what we're talking to companies in terms of hardening defenses has to do with risk mitigation. What do you value most? Where is it on your system? Should it even be on your system? If it's on your system, how can you make it hardest for an adversary who's inside your system to get it? But we won't be able to 
show that step of why they were taking it and when we've been able to do it has always involved the cooperation of a company. And one more point on that because it's, there's a, a uh, groundbreaking significant case being announced today out of the Southern District of New York of a criminal, uh, in a criminal case, of a criminal uh, gang that penetrated uh, financial institutions, among others, to, uh, to steal an enormous amount of information and were plotting to use it for things like a very sophisticated insider uh, trading use of stolen information. This threat that we're seeing now, it's nation state, it's terrorists, but it's also organized criminal groups. And you don't know when you're the victim which, which one it was, which is why we need you to come in, uh, work with us, so we can marry it up with the rest of the information we have and figure it out. Sir. And when you're done with it, pass the microphone to directly to the gentleman in back of you, and we'll get two questions on the table with, with one shot. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you. I'm Larry Clinton with the Internet Security Alliance. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for all you're doing, uh, and I think you did a great job explaining the sophistication of the problem and how it's woven into everything else, terrorism, etc. Um, I think you guys are doing a great job, but my problem is I don't think there are enough of you guys. I don't think that you are uh, being adequately resourced. Uh, notwithstanding the high-profile cases you're talking about, the estimates I've seen is we're successfully prosecuting maybe one or two percent of cyber criminals. We're chasing a problem that is 500 billion to a trillion a year, with less than uh, five or six billion nationwide in the federal government. What can we do to solve the problem of our federal government vastly underinvesting? in our efforts to fight cybercrime. Okay, let's get one more question on the table before we... Hey, I'm Tim Radout from the German Marshall Fund, and I also wanted to thank you for coming out and for how transparent the administration has been and explaining you know, the challenges we're facing. It helps us think it through and work through it together as a country, and I really appreciate it. I also appreciate the, you know, the law enforcement being on the table and being thought through. Um, but, you know, as we're, and Admiral Rogers has basically challenged the academic community and really anyone to help us come up with deterrence theory and help us come up with, and by theory, you mean a, a framework for understanding cause and effect, guiding action. But part of the problem is, and it's a constantly evolving threat landscape, we don't always know what the tools are. We don't know what is possible. And obviously, you don't want to give away sources and methods. But, you know, for example, you know, if we're trying to think through what reaches the level of significant consequence, which would trigger DOD um, jumping in and helping out in the case of a cyber attack that reaches that level, we still don't know what that threshold is. And there are all these things, you know, whether it's serious disruption to the financial system or these things that we, we really never had to grapple with in human history. So in order to create norms, we have to kind of know what's possible or what was at least what we think is possible. So if you can comment at all on that, I'd appreciate it. All right, so we've got, are we under-resourcing this problem? Um, and how should we think about deterrence at the larger, at the, at the, at the higher end threat level? So uh, start with uh, Larry's uh, uh, question. We need to clone you. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I, I think uh, you're right that it's, it, it is under-resourced, and not just by the um, <coughs> federal government. I mean, if you think about where we've gone as a country, say 30 years ago, 98% uh, according to one study of what we stored was stored in paper or another analog form. Today, it's the inverse. 
98% uh, is stored digitally. That took an enormous investment, and we rushed as a country into this space and took advantage of it and developed in it more than any other country in, in, the, uh, in the world. But we did not at the same time invest on the security side of the house. And so we're playing catch up. And we're playing catch up both in terms of developing and resourcing a deterrence model, but also on the defensive side. And uh, when I was uh, working for Direct Mueller, I remember he gave his first big speech on this area and, and made the analogy to the roads that the Romans had built. Um, amazing, uh, amazing accomplishment, the Romans' roads. But those were the same roads that were used to invade and sack Rome. And when it comes to cyber, I think we need to seriously think now, are we at an inflection point where we've gained great strategic advantage by our ability to move quickly into this space? But if we don't move quickly on both the deterrence and the defense side of the house, what was a strategic advantage may become a strategic liability given how connected our systems. All the more true when you consider the internet of things and how fast we're moving in that direction. And I think that links, uh, Tim, to your, uh, to your deterrence question as we uh, come up with a doctrine. It is an important area uh, to look at. But one thing is for sure, it can't, it can't stop. At, some of the debate has been around whether what um, constitutes armed conflict uh, and when will we have a cyber uh, offensive response? And it's got to be a, a more complex. It's never going to be as simple as a Cold War, Cold War uh, nuclear deterrent um, game theory strategy, I don't think, in part because this space anonymity is a factor. So you need to show that you can identify who did it. And then the adversary needs to know that you know who did it. And, but also because it's on such a, a range of scale I mean, the, the Sony attack, I think it was very important that we have a deterrence model and show that we respond. At the same time, that's not going to be uh, armed conflict. And then the third complicating is whether you respond in kind. So given that we moved most quickly uh, to digitalize our economy, um, then it may be that some of our adversaries who cause harm in this area, that the most effective deterrent is not in cyber space. And we, so we need to keep all tools or options on the table in terms of response that the government takes, ranging to the kinetic if it costs uh, lives inside uh, the United States. Yes, sir. Uh, wait for the microphone, though. Thanks so much for taking my question. Dave Pereira from Politico. I wonder if I can ask uh, two, a short one and a slightly longer one. The short one is, can you give an update for the Ferrazai case? Where is that in terms of actually getting extradition? The longer one is, did I understand you correctly in saying this is just a matter of time until terrorists actually uh, hack major infrastructure? You said that uh, when a terrorist group is, uh, once they develop the capability, they're going to deploy it. Um. Sorry, the first. Oh, uh, in terms of um, the uh, Frieza case, we're pursuing extradition through the uh, uh, through the Malaysian court system. The uh, uh, in terms of the terrorist groups, uh, what it said is they have the intent, and if they develop the capability, they are going to use it. Um, certainly, some of these groups, and they're not going to be deterrable, and so. If we don't 
work to disrupt their ability to have that uh, capability, it's going to be a matter of, of time before they get the, uh, get the capabilities. But we need to do two things. Offense outstrips defense right now in this space, so we need to work uh, as hard and fast as we can to catch up in terms of improving our defenses, including resilience. Um, so again, operating from the assumption that an internet-connected system is vulnerable and can be breached, what can you do to get your critical service or sector back up and running again? And at the same time, on offense, we need to work uh, as fast as we can to make it as difficult and slow their curve in terms of developing that capability. So you've described a bunch of successes, organizational and policy and prosecutorial. A few months ago, you know, particularly at the height of the OMB stuff, if you'd asked, I suspect any member of this audience, um, are we winning in cyber or are we losing? Everybody would have sort of smirked, giggled, and said, you know, we're getting our butts kicked. Um, is that wrong? And are we in any sense reaching a turning point where, you know, where policy is becoming effective in addressing in addressing the magnitude of the threat as we face it? I think, so if you look at where we came having done this for a while, it's remarkable over the last couple of years in terms, for instance, when I go to speak to the so-called C-suite, CEOs, boards, general counsels, we had enormous difficulty uh, penetrating that audience. They saw the upsides of investing in this space, but not the downsides, as recently as five or six years ago. It just was not on the radar. and. Now it is, and that's an important precursor to getting change, is people having a sense of the magnitude of the problem and concern about the, uh, concern about the risk. But if you're saying, are we, where, are we now where we need to be? No. Uh, we've moved very quickly over uh, a period of years to get better, both on the deterrence space and also with starting to make the investments on the defensive side of the house. But we need to move faster and do more uh, to get to where we need uh, to be. And I don't, that's not going to happen in a matter of uh, months. That's going to be a years-long project when you consider how much time and ingenuity we invested to get to a state where we've digitalized and, and connected everything to the internet. And it may, at the end of the day, be that we innovated our way out of the, out of the problem. The internet that we're using was fundamentally not designed to be secure. And it was used, the protocol that was used was one that was designed for communications or fast communications, but we were using it for so many other things. And I know there are some of the bright minds in private, in terms of private investment, but also needs to be there in terms of federal thinking. And for those of you who are thinking about it in academia as to how do we, how do we reach that state? So the Obama administration has another year left You've described a year-long project, years-long, years-long project. You've got one of them. Um, you know, what, what should we expect from NSD over the next year and what a year from now, if we see, will, will be evidence that that year was, was well spent and, and has furthered us along the years-long project rather than sort of stalling us out? The, uh... I'd say two things. One is we very much, both through direct outreach and the use of our existing legal tools, want to reach a state where there is every CEO in the country 
uh, every thought leader in the country is aware of what the threats are, and they are thinking about how to counter them. And in particularly, they're thinking of this as a risk mitigation issue. There's, there's not a, a magic tool that you can buy and now you're safe, but it needs to be a part of the way you, you think about your general uh, business. And two, uh, that you see the use of our enforcement tools against national security actors, which just wasn't on the table when we started this, to become routine enough that, uh, I see uh, Ellen here along with others, that it, doesn't, uh, it no longer warrants a front page of the, uh, of the newspaper because people expect when you do this type of activity that you can and will be uh, caught. So I expect to see additional uh, enforcement actions across the range of actors, whether it's Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese state-sponsored economic espionage or uh, Iranian uh, theft or destruction, uh, Iranian-affiliated actors theft or destruction of information, or a terrorist uh, group stealing information, or the Syrian Electronic Army that we show that we can use an enforcement program. So uh, we have time to put a few more questions on the table and then give John a chance to wrap up. So uh, ma'am, and the, then hand the macro microphone in back of you. And then let's add these two right here, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Thank you. I'm Paula Stern. I'm a member of the Atlanta Council Executive Committee, and thank you for your presentation. Um, I uh, have been involved uh, where I was in a intellectual property rights case as an expert witness. Mm -hmm. And we were informed uh, by the FBI, this was several years ago, maybe it was before things had become public the way you have described, that um, the law firm had been uh, penetrated. And of course, the whole question is, what were they looking for? And it came from China. What, who, we didn't, I didn't know anymore. So I'm interested in the question about China. And now that we have this new uh, arrangement articulated bet between our two nations, um, with regard to enforcement, um, is there a way in which we can see a sign from China that they themselves are cooperating just like, for, for example, Malaysia was cooperating with us in a particular case. Um, is, is that something that would uh, demonstrably answer many skeptics' questions about the effectiveness of this new agreement? Okay. Sir? Thank you. Yeah, my name is Jeremy Wu, and I'm from the uh, Committee of 100. I have a two-part uh, question. Um, and first of all, thank you for a very informative talk and, um, and your outreach efforts. My first question relates to, you mentioned during your talk about 50 cases, and I guess in general, um, how does the public find out about the number of prosecutions, number of investigations, um, plea agreements and, and perhaps dismissals. And my second question on dismissals is related to how NSD balance the need to deal with uh, national security, which is obviously very important, but also the civil liberty aspect, in particular dealing with American citizens. Mm -hmm. And um, last week, 42 Congress uh, members wrote to the Attorney General uh, the second time about the recent trend that there were four Asian American scientists 
who were accused of very serious economic espionage charges, and yet their cases were dropped. Okay. And we're, that all happened within the last 10 months. Great. Let's get the, these other two questions on the table, and then we will wrap up. Thank you for doing this. Um, quick question, internally, sort of. Uh, Mr. Snowden, where are we with him? <laughs> I, c I commend the brevity of that question to you all as a model. Sir. Well, not quite as brief, but uh, almost. You know, you know, when it comes to business, the only thing that really matters is the bottom line. How much money are we making for our shareholders? So now you come to the issues we're talking about, which involve nation states, organizations, all that. But the tools that we have now, from a litigator, from a litigation perspective, not technology and all that, but you rely on laws. So it seems like we have an administration that deals with executive orders like poker hand. You know, we're going to throw one out, throw one out, throw one out. We threw one out with Iran, and it's already being contested in court because it's not a treaty. It hasn't been put through Congress. It hasn't, hasn't been codified in law. So as you go through looking at how to litigate these issues, how to enforce issues, are, do you have the right codified, enacted legal tools to do it? Or are, you, are we still relying upon informal policy, executive orders, which are, we're finding out more and more are losing in court? Good. So the floor I, is yours, sir. So the answer is 42. Uh, and I hope I've addressed all of your, uh, so uh, I'll try to address a little, a little bit of each, but I, maybe starting with uh, Paula's uh, question, and I, I, I think that it's a good example of how you can be creative in trying to change behavior, because one of the first things we did when we started this new approach was, being lawyers, uh, think about law firms. And what does a law firm do for its, its companies, fundamentally? They take your most valuable, damaging uh, secrets. And then we put them all together in a folder. That, and then we call the folder, essentially, crown jewels, or how to destroy a company in five easy steps and stick, and stick it on an internet-connected computer. And no one will accuse, necessarily, lawyers of being, writ large, the most cyber-savvy individuals. And so one thing we were seeing in terms of the intel is that uh, adversaries had figured that out. And so instead of targeting, especially if it was defense or finance, people had invested a lot in their companies are trying to keep that information safe. So instead of targeting them, which might be a lot harder, they were targeting the uh, law firms and looking for those folders. So we tried to do two things. One was tell the law firms uh, that this is an issue, that you're being uh, targeted, and so you need to change behavior. And that you know, was some, probably somewhat effective. More effective, uh, to your point about dollars and cents, is we told the clients and said, don't hire a law firm unless they, when they're signing a, a contract with you, are going to tell you about what they're doing to protect your information and tell you that they're going to inform you if it's been breached. That saw a very uh, big change in law firm behavior, including they have these information sharing groups. And some sectors are a little harder to get them started in. Law would be a sector that's traditionally pretty competitive. But now you're seeing some of the major uh, uh, top AMLAW 100 firms sign up for an information sharing group on threat information. That's client or business driven. We've tried to follow that same uh, model by reaching out in other industries and saying, before you go down your supply chain or hire contractors, insist that they have certain standards and also insist that they'll tell you if a breach has, uh, has occurred. 
I do think that, uh, and one of, the, one of the outcomes of this dialogue, and we'll see if it pays off, is a conversation with, uh, with China, a quite uh, uh, mature country, um, looking to do business across, across the world about taking enforcement actions within each of our, uh, within each of our respective borders. And now we'll see. Uh, but I do think you're right. It would give great confidence if you, uh, uh, to see enforcement actions, uh, enforcement actions there, and that would put actions behind the words that we've, uh, that we've heard. And in terms of uh, uh, the importance of civil rights and uh, civil liberties, I mean, that, that's essential, I think, to our function at the National Security Division. I always give all our new attorneys uh, two critical documents that they need to read. And one is the 9-11 Commission uh, report to show what happens when we don't uh, uh, apply our laws in a way that's geared towards the threat. But the second is the Church Committee uh, report, which shows what happens when we don't follow uh, the rule of law and take into account civil rights and civil liberties. And those should be the twin, uh, to my mind, guiding posts for each of our attorneys in, in the division. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that every case that you bring will be successful, but we should never bring a case uh, unless we believe that we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That also means if you discover new evidence in the course of your investigation of a case, that you as the prosecutor should independently uh, work to dismiss that case and not, uh, and not just let it try out, through, uh, try out through the system. And I know that's true in the National Security Division. It's also true with some of the other cases uh, you've mentioned that don't involve national security um, uh, charges, that, that, that philosophy. On the codification of, uh, uh, through statute, yes, we need new, uh, many laws uh, that we're using in this area are out of date and have not been written to address the current threat. And so we'll see what, we'll see what happens, whether it's information sharing or the current regime where there are, I think, 47 different state data breach notification laws. Other than uh, lawyers looking for business, I don't see how anyone could say that that's, that's a great system. So one company might have to work its way through 47 different state laws instead of having a federal data breach uh, standard to, um, to putting additional criminal penalties on the books or better defining some of the criminal statutes, all three of which are uh, up pending on Congress. You hear huge bipartisan uh, support for them, but we haven't seen uh, passage yet. I think the information sharing is, is the closest. Uh, so, and I do think it's an area where you need to continue to look to, for uh, legislative action. That said, in the absence of it, the threat's here, and we've got to keep using the, uh, the tools and authorities that we do have as creatively as we can within the rule of law to address this threat. Please uh, join me in thanking John Carlin oh. for being with us. <laughs> oh, yeah. do, do, you, do you want to address <laughs> Mr. Snowden? Uh, no, it's uh, th that's a case uh, uh, that's a case that's been charged. So uh, uh, I will not uh, not otherwise address it. Thanks. Right, thanks.